So we come to our last class. It's been a five-week class on untangling emotions, and it's been a wonderful time looking at all the different emotions that we experience and their proper place in our life. Um, and last week, we'll just briefly cover what we talked about. We talked about relational conflict, and we deal with relational conflict by asking, you know, this is what it was like for me. What was it like for you? Uh, this is what it was like for you. Am I hearing you right? being able to understand from their perspective, and then what can we do about this situation? And as I was thinking about that class on relational conflict last week, it's also good to mention that it would be good if you need to take a break to step back and just breathe. Often in relational conflict, it's very heated and fiery, and it's good for us to pause and to be able to step back from the moment so we're not overtaken with our emotions uh, where it's unhelpful. So always be able to do that as well. Then we looked at how we can feed positive emotions and how we can starve negative emotions. Um, today, as we end our five-week course on this class, we do so by speaking on some of the hardest emotions there are to deal with. Um, this includes fear, anger, grief, guilt, and shame. Okay, some of the, the five, five uh, emotions are very hard to deal with. And we'll only be able to engage a couple of these this morning. There's just too much to say about anger and, and guilt. But if you want to uh, get more information on untangling emotions, the book is incredibly helpful on these points. It helped me a lot. Um, but we're only going to engage these, these couple of emotions here this morning. Fear and then guilt and shame, which are just very intricately tied together. So then we want to begin by engaging fear. How do we rightly engage Fear. There's a lot of different <clears throat> words for fear. Um, uneasy, right? You're uneasy. You're, you're anxious. You're, you're tense. You're uptight. You're haunted, scared, afraid, terrified. We use like a bunch of descriptive words uh, to describe this thing we call fear. And it's like a spectrum, right, of how scared or fearful you are. And the, and the question we have as Christians is how do we engage fear? Well, first, I think we have to understand what it is. What is fear when we are feeling it and experiencing it, right? Fear communicates a simple message, and that is something you value is under threat. If you're fearful, it's because something you value and desire is under threat. Something might happen to that thing that you value that is bad. Now, as we've been saying in this class over and over and over again, we recognize that these negative emotions that we're covering, not all of them are always bad. There's always good aspects to negative emotions that we feel. And so fear is what helps us keep our children safe, right, and ourselves safe. It keeps us from doing stupid, dumb things that we shouldn't do that could harm ourselves or endanger the lives of others around us. And the same can be true for anxiety as well, the anxiety that we feel and experience. Take, for example, uh, Paul's, Paul's example for us in 2 Corinthians 11.28. He says to the church there, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxious concern for all the churches. It's a type of fear. And so fear can be compatible with our faith, for loving others and caring for others. Anxiety can be a part of actually caring for each other as we should. It's not all bad. 
And so then, this brings us to the crucial question of how does our fear then supposed to relate to others, right? How does my fear supposed to relate to others all around me? How is it driving me to connect with people? And how we answer this question will help us determine really whether or not the fear is healthy or unhealthy, right? Healthy fear versus unhealthy fear or negative indestruction. So how does fear cause me to relate to others? Well, there's two negative ways <laughs> that fear can cause us to, to relate to others all around us. First, it can, it can push us toward others. That's not bad, right? But it can push us towards others in an overly clingy, overbearing way. Okay, that's one way fear can cause us to relate. Or on the flip side, it can cause us to, to run away, right? Isolate, hide. So a person who is fearful of being judged might isolate themselves away from others as a form of self-protection. Right? They don't want to be condemned or looked down upon, so they relate to others by you know, keeping them at bay. They have this arm's length distance. Right? I'm not going to actually let anyone actually know the true me, because you might judge me. Right? Uh, I think we see an example of this clearly, uh, Adam and Eve. Right? We see fear. What do they do? They isolate. They run away. They, they then, when they're confronted by God, they're so fearful, what do they do? They start blame shifting. Right? They're not going to own what they actually did. I'm going to start blaming and, and so it isolates them and it separates them from others rather than bring them together. So then on the flip side, okay, that's running away and hiding, but then we can also be pushed towards others in an overbearing way. So suppose uh, a young, awkward man who has experienced just like repeated rejection from girls he's interested in, like 10, 20 rejections in a row. He finally finds a girl, right? And he's in a dating relationship with her. And now he is like overly fearful of being like rejected from her down the road. And so he's like overly attentive to his girlfriend's like every twitch or move. Like he's always like on edge, like don't leave me, right? He's like, I got, I got to watch out for not messing this up. And, and while she might like that attention initially, it, it might lead to her feeling smothered in the end. And so both of these ways fear can cause us to relate to being like really overbearing on one sense or isolating and running away. You know, isolating like a hermit crab or smothering the person to death like an octopus or something like that, right? Um, so those are the two ways that fear can really cause us to relate to others around us. So, as we look at how fear should cause us to relate to others, we should ask the question whether or not this fear is driving me to prayer and toward God and toward others or away from others in these negative ways that we've talked about. So I think it's good at this point to, to mention the passage that I think we know very well, Philippians 4, 6. And what does Paul say here? He says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Okay. Don't be anxious. Pray. Now, it's interesting that Paul says, don't be anxious here, because what did we just see in 2 Corinthians just a second ago? I'm anxious. I'm anxious for the churches, right? That's what we see there. I'm anxious for their well-being. So how can Paul both just say, you know, don't be anxious on the one hand, and I'm anxious, right? And, and, and to, you know, we could talk about that, that seeming contradiction. I don't think it's a contradiction at all. But what I think Paul is communicating here in Philippians 4, is that we are not to be anxious in the sense of letting the anxiety we experience isolate us or keep us from God and others 
in a healthy way. We're not to let the anxiety that we experience cause us to these negative things of, of pushing others away, isolating or smothering them to that. Instead, we, we run to God. Paul is calling us, don't waste that anxiety that you feel. Don't allow it to be wasted. Instead, allow that anxiety that we feel to drive us into deeper relationship with God. And so for those of us who have deep anxiety, friends who have deep anxiety, that's actually an opportunity to really grow your relationship with God. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand here. Don't waste it. But with everything, with prayer and supplication, go to God. Allow it to connect to him and your love for others, even as we see Paul doing with the churches. His anxiety drives him to pray for the churches. So there's a good anxiety, um, and we want to moderate that appropriately. So then part of the solution, then, as we've already mentioned, is pray. We pray, we ask for prayer, and we pray for others all around us. And as we know, this requires vulnerability. It's a scary word, but it requires vulnerability on our parts to share when we're fearful, when we're scared, when we're anxious. And we do this with trusted loved ones. So this is a question we have to ask again. How is my fear causing me to relate to others? Then we have to look at how fear motivates us. So how does fear generally motivate us in this world? What is it that you always hear about fear? What does fear cause you to do? It's a common phrase. People always say it. Maybe you don't. It's not off the top of your head. Fight or flight. There it is right there. Yeah, you got flight or fight response when it comes to fear. And I think that's right. That's what we most often hear more than anything. And to expand on this definition, I think fear also motivates us to seek safety, control, and certainty. These three things. And now again, safety is great until you cling so tightly that you are no longer willing to step out of your zone of safety to love others or obey God. And there's good desires, right, to shape our environment or to get clarity about the outcome of our choices, but a demand for total control and complete certainty is something that, as, as creatures, finite creatures, we were never meant to have. And so again, while safety, control, and certainty are not bad things in of themselves, we need to be really aware of the reality that in this fractured life, in this broken world that we live in, we will never be completely safe, we will never be fully in control, and we will never be 100% certain of what is coming next. Instead, all of these uncertainties that we face that are scary and cause anxiety are really meant to be signposts. That point is not ultimately to strategy, but to God, who is in control of all things. And so the fears that we experience motivate us, or ought to motivate us, to really run to God first, to depend on him, to trust him. As children who enter the kingdom of God, we are dependent on God. And every encounter we come into with dangers is meant to drive us into further dependence on him, the one who provides safety and refuge. So this is how it ought to motivate us ultimately. But then how should we engage fear? How should we engage it then? Well, we're going to Obviously, say life-threatening situations are a little bit of a no-brainer, right? You got the fight-or-flight response a lot of the times. So sometimes you don't even have to think about it. 
But then there are a lot of fears. I would say 99% of the fears we experience aren't life and death situations. They're just normal things that we're fearful and anxious about. So how do we deal with those situations? We're going to go back to what we covered a couple weeks ago with how we engage our emotions. And first, we need to engage fear by identifying it first in our own life. Okay? We need to identify that we're actually fearful. We're anxious. We need to recognize it and call it what it is in our own life. It's easier for some and not so easy for others. Uh, but as we try to identify fear in our own life, it typically has, has these kinds of fingerprints. There's a shortness of breath. There's an increased heart rate. You know, you feel your, your palms, they're clammy, right? They're cold. You have tense muscles, uh, nervous twitching in the face, hands, or legs. And, and then there's also digestive issues. That's a large sign for, for anxiety and fear. Like digestive issues can result from long-term anxiety. There can be headaches, fatigue, and like a bunch of other symptoms as you look up what anxiety and fear can do to a person. And given enough time, basically, uh, fear can completely gnaw your body apart. It just, it can. It has effect on us biologically, uh, more than we perhaps give it credit. But this doesn't mean that every unexplained physical symptom stems from unaddressed anxiety or fear. It does mean, however, that your fears are probably having a bigger impact on your body than you realize. So another sign of unhealthy fear in a person's life, not always, but it could be uh, a person constantly asking the dreaded what-if questions, like what if this, what if that, what if that happens, what about this, you know, what if we don't have enough money left, and what if we get there, and they've already, you know, just so on and so forth, and, and it's just perpetual. And so these, these are different ways we can identify fear in our own life, potentially. So as we identify it, what do we do? We examine it then. So we've identified it, now we examine it. And it's helpful during this examination process to ask the questions, what are you caring about? What are you actively doing or not doing to deal with this fear? So as we examine these questions, you know, and as we ask these questions, trying to get to the bottom of it, you know, we have to ask more questions to get answers for these questions that are on the screen, okay? So first, in what context do I feel afraid or fearful or anxious? Is there a particular location that, that makes you like just afraid every time you're there? For some people, they're afraid to go home because of tension or, or physical violence or loneliness. Others become anxious in the dark. Uh, some people fear a stretch of road after an accident. And, and some fear churches. Elevators, airports, forests, uh, and just, just, just the list goes on. And the same is true then of time. When we're like, in what context am I fearful? What about time? What time of the year are you most prone to be afraid? Is it certain holidays, events, people, activities? Um, are there just certain contexts you just tense up? And so we need to ask this question, what context do I ask fear? Because it might shed light on the reason behind it. And then the second question is, how am I then responding to the fear in such contexts? So what do you do then when you find yourself responding to places, people, times, or activities that spark your fear? I think a lot of people in this day and age, they don't know how to respond to their fears or anxieties. And what do they do? Uh, they self-medicate. 
They escape with some negative coping mechanism. They binge watch TV shows. They mindlessly doom scroll through, through Instagram reels or TikTok. Uh, they get irritable with others around them and critical. You know, and, and these are all different ways we can respond to fears in our life. And it's good for us to note here, right, that the fact that you might not be proud of your reaction doesn't mean that the underlying concern here is invalid. So while we ask that question, how am I responding? We might not be proud of our response, but that doesn't negate the underlying concern itself. And so while our reaction might be sinful, it doesn't mean that the thing that's pressing us should be ignored or unaddressed. And, and I think sometimes we get so caught up in our reaction being wrong or the reaction of others being wrong uh, that we completely disregard the, the underlying issue altogether, and we shouldn't do that. And so even though our reaction may be wrong, it doesn't mean the underlying issue that set us off is right either. So both need to be addressed in the evaluation process. So as we examine our fears, then we are, we are searching for what it is that I, I value, what is it is that I'm afraid of losing, and, and then we, we don't ignore that issue, but we, we look to, to see what it is that we're treasuring, what it is that we really value in that moment. So examining our fears, then, is a chance to put names to our treasures. Our fears show us what we really value and desire. And so we don't squash this emotion when we feel it every single time, but it's good for us to examine it and see what it uncovers. Afterwards, then, we move towards evaluating our fear. After we've asked like these millions of questions about our fear, we evaluate. And as we've already said, we realize that some fear can be good. Many fears that we have are rooted in good loves. We already mentioned Paul's anxious care for the churches. But then on the other hand, right, there are fears that, can, that are negative, that lead our hearts away from God rather than drawing us closer to him. And this is what we need to be watchful for. So as we move towards evaluating, we need to ask the question, is my, my reaction godly and constructive or destructive and sinful? How am I dealing with it? And so as we look at our reactions, if it is wrong and sinful, we, 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 we repent, we ask for forgiveness, and, and we seek to see what it is that we're loving too much. Are we loving the right thing, the wrong thing? Um, or are we demanding certainty and control when that only belongs to God. So this is like the first question we can ask as we evaluate. And then a second question is, how likely then will this feared event come to pass? I think we've all had that experience where fear exaggerates greatly, right? Like we're so fearful of this thing and we're finding actually it's a massive exaggeration. I, should, I had nothing to be fearful at all. And so while fear rarely evaporates simply from knowing it's unlikely to happen, it's helpful for us to ask this question in preparing to see how real the fear is. And if you don't know how realistic this fear actually is, then ask. Ask somebody in your life that you trust about that fear, and it'll help you gain better perspective. And, and I find, personally, that it really helps me then to, eat, to mitigate my fear, either not have less fear, or maybe I should have more fear. Like when I'm talking with my wife and she's fearful about something, I'm like, oh, yeah, I should be more concerned about that, too. So it can go both ways as you talk with others about these things. And then, of course, 
how big of a deal would it be if your fear came true? That's just another question we can ask that provides perspective. Say the worst thing happens. So what? Is it that big of a deal? And then why? And looking at it from that perspective. And again, this might not solve your fear at the moment. In fact, it more often than not won't. But it is a helpful starting point. And it helps us then to get better perspective on what it is that we're fearing. But then we have to get to the core of our fears as we get to the heart of the problem. And so there are at least two more questions we have to ask. Should I care then about this threatened thing in my life? Should I value this thing in my life? And to put it another way, how does God see this situation? Does he feel the same way that I do about this thing in my life? And the answer could be yes and it could be no. Uh, Let's talk about an instance where it's a clearly no. An example would be a man who is having an affair might be deeply afraid of being caught. And the point is not whether or not he will be discovered or the likelihood of it happening. Instead, the issue is that he shouldn't be treasuring this deadly cancer in the first place. He should instead long to be found out instead of indulging in this devastating sin. And the fear of, of, of being found out and losing his mistress is completely wrong. And it's, it's flowing out of a love for something that he should instead reject and churn from. And so this is one question that we need to ask about the thing that we're fearful of losing. Okay, that's a clear example. But it couldn't just be a bad thing. It could also be a good thing. Has this good thing become an idol in my life, a core part of my identity that I care way too much about? And so there are plenty of things we should love and care about, but when they ascend to the place of God in our life, where it's everything, it's become an idol. And as we know, the Lord our God is the only one that we must worship above all. He must love him with all of our hearts. He must take first place in all things. And so when our fears reveal an idol in our life that we care way too much about, then we have to bring that before God too. And we need to, to reorder our loves based on God's grace and help. And of course, these are, these are tricky things to work out. It's complicated. It's not always easy to do. And so we talk with others that are trusted as well. So then we've identified, examined, evaluated, and then we have to, of course, act on what we find. And so what should we do then in responding to fear? And it really depends, doesn't it? It, it really, really depends on what you've uncovered and what you've unearthed. It depends on what our examination and evaluation brings to the front. It depends on how important or troubling a pattern is that you see in your life or the life of another. It depends on what else is going on in your life. And so there's like a million different ways we could respond to our fears. And they might all be right depending on the situation and circumstance. But despite that, there are a few things that we, we should consider strongly doing in such moments. And the first one is not so much uh, an if, and, or but, but something we most likely should do. Uh, we should find comfort for our souls in the promises and truths found in Scripture. We should find rest in God's character as we look for relief for our souls. And so as we turn to the Scriptures, there are just numerous passages that bring comfort to heart, that brought comfort to my own heart. I'm just curious here, as you've been fearful, have you been anxious in your life? Are there certain passages 
in your own that have become treasured to, to your soul, that have helped you just get through um, a difficult circumstance? That's a question for all of you. Um, a few passages that I know have helped me immensely are like Matthew 11, 28 to 30. You know, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm just feeling burnt out, exhausted. Like I have no idea what the future holds. We come to Jesus. We, we find rest. Um, what are passages for you that you have clung to over the years that have helped you um, find rest in? Yes, Tim. Absolutely. I mean, that one gets quoted in all sorts of secular movies, too. Even unbelievers find that incredibly comforting. Absolutely. Yeah, other, other passages for you, Lois. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a beautiful passage. Yeah. Any, any others that you just come to your mind, like, for, for your instance? Well, I encourage us just to continue thinking about treasuring. This is one way we can all work on, on dealing with our fears. It's meant to drive us to God, drive us to his word, his promises, and his character, and we need to keep working. Second thing, practically speaking, we can give attention to our bodies. We covered this a few weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning again. We're both biological and spiritual creatures together as one, and so give attention to your bodies when you're, you know, you're engaging in great fear and anxiety. Bring your breathing under control, exercise, look at your sleep schedule. A continued sleep schedule really helps with this. And your diet. If you have anxiety in the morning, fears due to public speaking, eat protein and carbs. It really helps settle your body completely. There's just so many things we can do to give attention to our bodies to help us then better respond to fear. And then third, we ought to face our fears. We ought to strongly consider facing our fears. Um, I think fear keeps us from sometimes doing what needs to be done or confronting it. So, for example, I hate going to the dentist, like, with a passion. And I think it was, like, a course of, like, seven years or something ridiculous like that. I didn't go to the dentist. I finally went. I had seven cavities. Yeah, it was bad. Uh, but they got all repaired and taken care of. I finally did it. You know, it was awful, uh, painful, terribly painful. Um, but I got it taken care of. But we can't let our fears keep us from maybe doing what needs to be done. Um, because in, in, in waiting longer, it can make the situation worse. And so we don't want fear to keep us from doing what needs to be done, but, but perhaps facing and, and taking it and confronting it and with the help of others around us. And so finally, then we can enlist the help of others then when engaging our fears. When working through all of these steps, we ought to enlist the help of others in fighting our fears and, and driving across this bridge as we do it. So again, obviously, enlist the help of others who are trusted that you know you can rely on. And, and I would recommend carefully choosing who that person is because if you choose the wrong person, it can actually damage and backfire. And I think we've maybe all experienced that at one point or another in our life. Any questions on engaging fear then? There's like a ton more we could say about this. Um, again, there's a lot more in the book, Untangling Emotions. I just recommend that again to you. Um, but then we'll move on then to engaging guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. So we consider guilt and shame. We go to one of the most well-known stories of the Bible, which is the parable of the prodigal sons. And as we all know this story, I think, it's about the younger brother who goes away, right? He squanders all that the father gave him. 
and, and he hurts his family deeply because of this. He shames his father's name and the community that he grew up. And so he is guilty in the fact that he's done something wrong and deserves punishment. You know, he's dishonored his father. He's broken the relationship by asking for his inheritance in advance and basically wishing his father dead. And he's ashamed, right? He's ashamed. He feels changed. He feels defiled to the point that he can't even imagine a way back home as a son by the end of the story. And the only thing, like overcoming his sense of shame, is his sheer will to survive, right? He's like, I'm going to die out here alone, so I got to go home. And so he hopes that he might be restored and tolerated, not as a son, but as a servant, because he is absolutely certain, due to the shame, that he will never be accepted as a son again. And so as we look at the role of guilt and shame in the life of the younger son, we realize that they had a really a crucial role, I think, in bringing him back to the father. Guilt awakens the son to sin. He knows he's done wrong. And shame tells him that there's no hiding what he's done and that things are now different because of his guilt. So guilt leaves open the possibility of a way back to the father, but the shame isn't always so optimistic about it at all. And so, as we know in the story, the father's love promises that there's always a way home in the midst of guilt and shame. And so, as we begin to look at these two things here for the remainder of our time, what are guilt and shame? What are they? Like, they're, 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 they're the same, but not really. There's some slight nuance here. Guilt is, I've done something wrong, okay? We're like oversimplifying here. I've done something wrong. And shame communicates something is wrong with me and others can see it. So we realize, as with all other negative emotions that we experience, that there are good aspects of guilt and shame when they're telling the truth about our situation. So if I have truly done something wrong, both guilt and shame help me to see that I've done something wrong. But, I think as we, as we all know too well, guilt and shame, when it becomes warped, can lead to a type of self-condemnation that argues that no forgiveness is possible, right? Shame, when warped, can lead us to believing that we've been so stained by what's happened to us or by what's been done to us that we're forever broken without any hope of redemption or being cleansed. So it can lead to the idea that I am so defiled, so broken, that I am fundamentally damaged and less than everyone else around me permanently. And so we live and act in this fashion and shame, uh, shape of shame. So this is it, generally speaking. Oversimplified, but this is what we're working with here this morning. So how do shame and guilt then relate to others? Both guilt and shame are meant to alert us to a break in relationship. So just as we feel a pain in our body that alerts us to a, a problem, so the pain of guilt and shame are meant to really alert us to a problem as well in our relationships to others. And so re- it requires that we examine this signal. Guilt reflected in a healthy conscience provides guardrails to help us know when we're acting against God or neighbor. And of course, as we've all experienced this, the weight of guilt, when we confess it, if we bring it into the light, there's immense freedom that happens as well. But we also realize that guilt and shame 
much like fear, can cause the exact opposite. It can cause us to isolate further rather than seek reconciliation. And so when we hide our guilt rather than, you know, engage it, shame can begin to snowball, right? Making it harder and harder for us to engage with these emotions and constructively work towards restored relationships. So then how do we engage guilt and shame? First, as we've been going through this same paradigm for all of them, we need to identify it, right? Like many negative emotions, we can sometimes hide guilt and shame from ourselves. I think it's often easier for all of us to like sometimes pretend they just don't exist at all in our life. That's how we deal with it. Uh, the good voice of guilt and shame, I shouldn't have done that, and it has consequences, uh, can easily become I hate myself and I want to be invisible. And so much like fear, we can often deal with guilt and shame through busyness of life, negative coping mechanisms that we've already covered, uh, avoiding people that we would normally enjoy, and so on. Uh, we try to dull our consciences rather than deal with guilt and shame through denial and escapism, and we further die on the inside more and more each and every day. So just as Adam and Eve tried to hide their guilt and their shame by, by blame-shifting onto others, so we do the same. You know, we're, we're pointed out, we see guilt and shame, we try to hide from it. We, we blame others around us rather than owning it. And so if we aren't used to identifying guilt and shame in our own life, uh, they can hide under many distractions and under many other emotional responses. But anytime you find yourself moving away from others and, and hiding what's going on inside of you, it, it's worth asking, I think, have I actually done something wrong? Am I trying to hide something? Or am I fearing that someone views me negatively in a way that, you know, I'm afraid of? And so we need to first identify it, and then we need to examine this, these feelings. So guilt has both objective and really, I think, subjective realities. Uh, we can, for instance, be guilty, right? But not feel guilty. And then we can feel guilty but not actually be guilty, right? Both objective and subjective. Can be guilty and not feel guilty. You can feel guilty and actually not be guilty. So it's important for us then when examining guilt and shame to really get behind the reason for that feeling uh, in the first place. Do I feel guilty and ashamed because I did something wrong? Or is it for another reason? And so some have tried to really distinguish between these two types of feelings with like, true guilt versus false guilt. Okay, that's just a way we try to distinguish true guilt, I should actually feel guilty, or false guilt, actually I shouldn't feel guilty, and I do. Um, so true guilt is about an objective moral failing. I've actually done something wrong. I've violated God's, God's will for me. And false guilt is, again, the result of a, a perceived moral failing rooted in something other than God's law. Okay, it's in addition to God's law, whether it's cultural norms or a family's values, or simply the expectations of others around us. So there's true guilt and false guilt, different reasons, and we need to get behind it. So for example, um, you see this a lot with kids of, of divorced parents, right? Um, a child whose parents are divorced may feel guilty because his, his mother becomes sad whenever he leaves to visit his father on the weekends. 
He feels bad. He feels guilty about this. He feels responsible for his mother's sadness. But he isn't at fault for that at all. He's not at fault at that fault. He feels it. So then there's also the guilt that someone experiences from people-pleasing, you know, which is our desire to help others, and it's twisted into guilt that plagues us every time someone's disappointed because we couldn't meet their expectations. And so false guilt happens when we break a law that isn't God's. And of course, this can be really tricky to navigate because when cultural and relational codes don't reflect God's values, they may need to be broken and others will ask us to feel guilty for things that we shouldn't feel guilty for doing so. So again, for example, um, we'll use an example that is in America. We'll go to Japan where this is very relevant. Um, in Japan, the men there largely ignore their families completely due to the cultural work um, that's been work that established there. It's customary for businessmen to go to work from something like 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. in the evening, and then afterwards, you go out with your boss for drinks at the bar. Okay, that is the cultural norm, and you don't get back to your family until like well after midnight, and then you rinse and repeat six days a week. Okay, that, that is the norm over there for the most. Mom, is that the still the norm? You just got back. Is that the norm? Still the norm? Yep, that's still the norm. It's also why the church is having major problems reaching men there, because this is the expectation. Um, and as you can imagine, a man who is a Christian trying to break from that, not going out for drinks after, is to care for his family at home, is going to be shamed in Japanese culture. It just happens. He's ostracized. He will not get promoted. He's going to be looked at as disrespectful. But at the same time, caring for his family, it may be something that he needs to do in that society anyway. And so he will be guilt and shame for the wrong reasons. And so again, as we examine our guilt and shame, we can experience similar things here for, for other reasons. Is this guilt and shame moving me away from God and others, or is it moving me towards God and others? In this case, God and his family. Like, we have to be able to examine these things appropriately. Um, any questions on identifying and examining? Make sure. You can always stop me anytime I'm moving here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it has in Japan for a large majority of men who stay indoors. And there's a term for them where they don't even come outside anymore. They just order all their groceries and they've isolated and live off the welfare system. Yeah, it's, it's very immobilizing, for sure. Can happen here, too. All right. So examining or identifying, examining, evaluating. Evaluating guilt and shame. Um, so again, as we evaluate we have to really ask that question, does my guilt and shame mean that I've actually done something wrong before God and man? Have I actually done something wrong according to his standards? Do I actually have some kind of sin to repent of or have I simply adopted someone else's disappointment? Does my shame mean that I need to face what I've done or what was done to me or both? And so again, often the case is that guilt and shame can lead to an, an indictment of who I am like I'm damaged goods, defiled, worthless, like the prodigal son living in the pig pen, right? And often when we experience such incredibly powerful emotions, I think these people need hope. We all need hope and courage to move forward. We need hope and light given to us and others when facing the immense weight of guilt and shame. Because if you've ever experienced it, it is heavy when it hits. And so as we evaluate shame and guilt, whether right or wrong, we always need to come back then 
to the love of God and grace given to us in Jesus. Because this is the only solution I think we can find powerful enough to remove our guilt, and it's the only thing powerful enough to restore our stained identity and to provide a way home to true intimacy and fellowship with God so that we are no longer stained by sin, guilt, and shame that we so experience, but washed and cleansed through the blood of Jesus on our behalf. And so as we evaluate, as we come to these solutions, we, we act, um, yes, by needing forgiveness, perhaps, if we're guilty and we're shamed for the right reasons. But the reality is people who are guilt and shamed need something far more than just forgiveness. We need something far more than just forgiveness for our shortcomings because the reality is we need God's immense grace. We need something more than just forgiveness because God's intention is that we're not only forgiven, but that we're freed from these feelings to enter into even a deeper relationship with himself. So even as we look at the, the story of the prodigal son, right? The father doesn't just forgive him and move on. What does he forgive him to the point of? To restoring him as a son, right? He wants a deeper relationship with him. So sometimes I think we stop at just forgiveness and we, we forget the most crucial part. No, he wants a deeper relationship with you. He wants to know you in a, a deeper, righter way. And so God doesn't want to just remove our guilt and shame. He wants to draw us into an intimate relationship with himself like the lost son who is embraced by his loving father and, and kissed by him, right? He wants to remove our guilt and shame so that we no longer have to hide, but that we can come to know him fully and completely as we should, as his beloved children. And so God is not just trying to fix a dent in his reputation or something like that. His purpose is far deeper in that he wants to heal our identity by identifying with us and by becoming one with us. And so restoration with God means being restored to our status as his beloved children. And so in this, we need to, again, recognize God's extravagant grace. Yes, he offers forgiveness. And more than this, he wants us to be brought into deep fellowship with him. I just realized I am way past time. Um, but remember the story of God's redeeming grace and recognizing also our new identity in Jesus as well. We need to remember these things. Yes, we've been stained, but Jesus gives us a new identity. We're a child of the true king. We belong to him, and we're his forevermore. And then, of course, finally, as we've been saying over and over again, as we engage this, as we act, we need to be able to receive help from others when we are down and out And just as we need to be reminded of Jesus most of all in these moments, so we remind ourselves and we help others be reminded of his grace. So let's go ahead and and pray. And then, uh, again, I encourage you to read this book to get more help for anger and grief, which are wonderful. And then we'll prepare for the worship service this morning. Father, thank you so much again for your goodness and your grace to us. And we ask for those who are plagued by guilt and shame, and fear, that they might find their rest and restoration, Lord, in you. We thank you for Jesus who cleanses us from our sins, who redeems us from our hopeless despair, and you have given us new identity as your children, as children of the sovereign God of the universe. We belong to you, and you fill us, Lord, with joy and peace. So help us, Lord, to be 
reminded of these immensely hopeful truths that we have in you. And may we be cured, Lord, of our, of our anxiousness. And may we instead use it, Lord, to draw us into closer relationship to you. So bless our worship service this morning. Help us to help others, Lord. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.